Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 8 of Spam 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 Humbug, which we've decided to title, let me get this straight, Video Games Are Already Grown Up. And we'll get to, uh, we'll explain what that means in a little bit here, but first off, just a quick round of introductions. I'm Stan the Fury Dragon, I run the Ultima Codex, I ran its predecessor, do a few other things on the side. Um... <clears throat> And I'm going to kick it over to Linguistic. I am Linguistic Dragon. I am the author of the Ultima Journeys blog. Right. And Kevin. This is Kevin Fishburn, the author of the game Sanctimonia and the sci-fi shoot-em-up Sylph. All right. So before we get into the main topic... Uh, there's just something I wanted to follow up on from the last podcast. Uh, of course, I was talking about Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning and my great love for the game, but what I forgot to mention was the fact that, you know, this was... Well, I mentioned that it was worked on by, you know, Ian Fraser, whom most of us know as Tibby, uh, or Tiberius, or Tiberius Moongazer, the guy who was the head, the lead of the Ultima Five Lazarus project. What I forgot to mention, though, was that there's actually courtesy of Ian and a few of his other designers, um, a number of Ultima-ish references buried in Reckoning itself. The most prevalent one is in the Destiny's system of the game. Um, So, I ordered the Reckoning Collector's Edition. I've got the complete set of Destiny cards. And, I mean, obviously... We're recording this as a Google Hangout, so there's some video feed between myself and Linguistic and Sanctimonia, um, and unfortunately you guys can't see this, but I'm going to try and describe it. So, here's a... Reckoning the way it works is basically the Destiny's unlock <clears throat> based on uh, skills. So, you know, you've got three... Or I guess stats would be a better way to put it. Uh, the skills, the abilities are kind of a different component of this. So you got the three statistics that um, you increase in, in Reckoning, as you level up. Um, strength or, or might. Um, wisdom, I think, is the other one. And then... Um, ah, the name of it eludes me. But basically, well, here, you know what? Let's just cut to the chase. Strength, dexterity, intelligence, okay? I don't think they quite use all three of those names, but that's basically what they are. So, if you're leveling up in the strength component, um, you're going to unlock certain destinies, like the brawler, or the fighter, or the soldier, or the warrior, or the conqueror, or the warlord. The warlord being the top level destiny. And I mean, each of these will, you know, if you assign one of these destinies to your character, you'll be, uh, you know, you'll gain certain abilities, combat focused abilities, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but all the destiny cards have a very reddish hue to them. Moving on over to dexterity, <clears throat> what are some of the classes here? You got a rogue. Scout, Hunter, Ranger, Assassin, Nightblade, okay? So again, Dexterity-focused Destinies, these will give you a lot of uh, Dexterity-type abilities. Decidedly yellow hue to the cards. And if you're leveling up your Intelligence, Acolyte, Initiate, Seer, Sage, Sorcerer, and Archmage you know, bonuses to magic. You know, you don't even have to guess that these cards are blue. It gets better. Because you don't necessarily have to play pure. You know, if you're leveling up your strength and your intelligence, you may find destinies such as the Guardian, the Battle Mage, the Crusader, the Paragon, not the Paladin, but you know he wanted to, or the Champion. And yes, they're purple. 
so, um, <laughs> I remember Ian uh, pointing this out on Twitter, and he was just giddy about it. Um, so, this definitely is one point where uh, the good Mr. Fraser hid uh, in plain sight, and yet not so plain sight, uh, a very deliberate homage to Ultima within Reckoning. So that's that. And the cards go away, at least for the moment. And we continue. Okay, so... What are we on about? Video games, do they need to grow up? Um, Niche Gamer, again, newer site that i kind of been following lately, um, they published an article a little while ago attacking what they feel is the mistaken idea that video games are inherently immature. Quoting, one of the common themes of the so-called games criticism is the idea that video games, as they are right now, are simply immature power fantasies, which exist purely to appeal to the lowest common denominator. The medium itself has potential. There's nothing in there that makes telling serious, intelligent stories through the games less viable than telling them through books or movies. Uh, but everyone, but a few underappreciated visionaries, prefer to focus on forgettable stories about heroes shooting villains. Things need to change if gaming is to be treated seriously. Is it a Polygon article, or is it a Warren Spector talk? Their take, Niche Gamer's take, then, is that while it could be possible to maintain this view if you looked at a fairly narrow subset of games, granted some of which are top-selling games, Call of Duty and similar titles, for example. Um, it's profoundly untrue if you do consider the broader selection of modern games, and if you look back at the history of the industry as well. Uh, imagine, the, the articlist writes, the most stereotypical plot for a role-playing game, computer or console, doesn't matter, that you can think of. Chances are it'll involve some sort of ultimate villain that needs to be defeated at the end of the game. Might be a dragon that kidnapped a princess, a cruel king, an evil wizard, a forgotten evil, or maybe something that came from space, but it will be there. A final boss that waits for you in his lair, threatens the whole world, and commands an army of enemies for you to overcome. One of the ways of making things less cliche and giving the player something to think about would be to create an RPG that has no final boss. Maybe even writing about a world in which all the major villains have already been defeated. This offers the possibility of a game that isn't really about the good guys fighting the bad guys, but about good guys proactively making the world a better place. Such a game exists. And it was made in 1985. Now, what game could they possibly be talking about? Well, spoiler alert, Ultima 4. Um, the argument being that, you know, and I mean, yes, like the Call of Duties and the GTAs, they do exist and they do, you know, they are top selling titles, sure. But, um, in spite of the success of these things, it would still be a mistake to look at video games broadly as being something fundamentally immature when for what was 1985 is that 30 years ago <laughs> um the mold of video games being and you know specifically because um richard garriott was concerned about the feedback that he was getting from ultima 1 2 and 3 about the fact that they were just you know about killing things um the mold has already been broken and it's really in a lot of cases i think just been a question of um you know from that starting point um evolving and iterating upon that idea of you know and that's not to say that you know there aren't plenty of rpgs that have an end boss to them but it is certainly to say that you know um <clears throat> apart from, you know, stuff in the Diablo Torchlight mold, um, RPGs as a whole have, you know, certainly uh, taken on the mantle of being something more, of presenting, you know, more than just wave after wave of enemies to defeat, you know, uh, whether it's, um, you know, 
something in the vein of, you know, uh, an Ultima 4-like morality play, or whether it's something, you know, more like a, a Bioware game, which sort of takes that um, and looks at it from inside, um, you know, more conventional RPG frameworks, but really amps up the level of moral decision-making far above and beyond what Ultima 4 was even capable of. Um, you know, I, I think there's a great wealth of maturity to be found without having to, you know, look at the games that would be considered niche. Anyway, someone jump in. <laughs> yeah, I think that part of the problem, if you can call it that, of the perception um, that the video game industry as a whole has not grown up uh, stems largely from critics who actually have an agenda. And, uh, you know, this sort of thing doesn't just plague uh, video games, it really plagues almost all forms of media. We get the same sorts of criticisms from film and novels, you know, the way people have criticized Quentin Tarantino films, uh, for example, due to a lot of the elements in there. And, you know, what What they do is they will only focus on the, uh, the works of art or games or films or what have you that serve their agenda while completely ignoring uh, the rest of them, uh, which in some cases may actually be the majority of them, uh, that are absolutely nothing like that. So it, it, it seems like, you know, the question itself isn't something that most people would really ask, you know, but rather a select group of very, you know, vocal individuals or organizations that have an agenda that has nothing to do with advancing the state of the art of computer entertainment. I mean, I am willing to grant the point that, you know, if you do sort of look outside of, I guess, what we could call the mainstream of gaming, you're definitely going to find um, <clears throat> stuff that's, you know, really, really heavy on the issues. I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast a game called Among the Sleep. It's a relatively short game, and it's kind of in the survival horror mode. Um, and, I mean, you know, okay, so it's kind of in the survival horror genre the protagonist your character is a two-year-old um <clears throat> you know who is trying to navigate what initially seems to be uh, a dark and potentially empty house but which quickly evolves into you know reasonably fantastical environments uh which are potentially inhabited by a lurking menace or a number of lurking menaces. Uh, that's a pretty dark setup as it is, and the game itself looks at some pretty heavy subject matter. I mean, it's looking at, you know, childlike fears, obviously, is the most, you know, foreground element that it's uh, presenting to the player, right? It's um, how, how must a dark house look, or how must the backyard look if a two-year-old were to accidentally wander out into it at midnight, right? Like, would it look like, oh yeah, here's the deck and there's some railings, or would it look like, you know, what is this cold, strange place and these massive columns, right? Like, I mean, <clears throat> it was a long time since I've been two, and I don't remember it at all, <laughs> but you know, I, I could see how maybe the perception would be different, especially when, you know, it's uh a time of night where, you know, fatigue is setting in. You're not necessarily in the same environment that you're supposed to be in. Um, but then Among the Sleep also deals with, you know, other issues too. It deals with divorce. It deals with alcoholism, potentially drug use. It deals with abuse. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, yeah, that's pretty harsh stuff. Um, stuff that happens though. So, you know, like, I mean... Certainly, there's some relevant social commentary there. Um, but, you know, even if... <laughs> I suppose, too, though, that, you know, one of the... One of the things that, you know, defines a game is the fact that... And this is something I think I touched on earlier, too. One of the things that defines a game is the fact that, you know, you do have this... <sighs> 
there is still this, you know, ideally, there should still be, you know, this sense that, you know, you're you're approaching the game with the intent to find something in it that's fun, right? Uh, Among the Sleep is fun to play in its own way. I get a kick out of the fact that crawling is the sprint mode. Um... <laughs> Some other stuff. I mean, I, what are what are the two ones that usually get cited? Uh, well, I mean, Gone Home is probably a, an okay example. Um, you know, like it's it's hard to find the fun in some titles. There, uh, yeah, Proteus would be another example. Mm-hmm. Is it a and game? It's just, yeah, and I mean, you don't even you know. To, to my mind, it's just. <sighs> Social commentary is all well and good, but you know, and I, I think I mentioned uh, this might have been in the in the pre-chat. Uh, yeah, this this was just before we started the broadcast. But I was talking about you know like Dragon Age, right? I tried playing Dragon Age. I didn't even finish the opening sequence. I tried playing Dragon Age again. I finished the opening sequence, and didn't finish the Battle of Ostagar, which is like the immediately next set piece you go to (sighs) because the combat bored me to tears it was not at all fun even though the story seemed kind of interesting um it was not at all fun you know and i was playing as an elf too so you know there was some of that interesting commentary on racism and slavery and stuff like that like and it was neat you know, like, that was engaging. The story looked, sounded cool. But the, co- oh my god, the combat. And, you know, it wasn't until I installed a couple of mods, sped up the combat animations, made my character do a few more epic moves here and there. Um, not that I found the combat difficult, just plottingly boring. So suddenly, at least, it was faster. It wasn't quite as plottingly boring anymore. And I got through the game, and it was a great game. Um, and it tackles some pretty heavy issues, you know. Um, you know, you've got stuff relating to, uh, like I said, there's the racism, there's the slavery stuff, there's sex stuff, there's, um, it's just, you know, Bioware doesn't really pull too many punches. Um, so, you know, it's not like the game doesn't handle a lot of serious material and makes you think about things. Um, it was just, you know, the experience of, trying to get to that content without getting completely bored out of my tree in the process. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it's, to my mind, it almost seems, you know, and actually this is, I, I find it especially irksome when it's Warren Spector that's talking about this because he often harps on this is, you know, um, dude you're famous for you know dungeon crawlers and and deus ex um you know (laughs) those games define in a lot of ways um a lot of the the mechanics and and design principles that make games work you know and it's not like deus ex doesn't have you know i mean it's definitely you know dystopian and futuristic but it's not like it doesn't have some social commentary to make either um, but it does so, you know, through the means of, wow, this is really fun and engaging to play. And I want to keep going. I want to keep pursuing this story, see where it leads me. So, um, so it always strikes me as a little bit, I guess, disingenuous might be the word when, when this stuff comes up. Cause it's just like, you know, there's lots of games that do this. It's probably not a bad thing if the ones that are unentertaining don't do as well as the ones that are. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where Warren Spector's coming from with, you know, his relatively recent tirades, uh, you know, against, like, violence in games, you know. I don't know if his uh, Disney, you know, fetish is is, you know, in some sort of full-blown mode of late, or if he just had a child and he's, you know, looking at 
life through new eyes, but I, I actually do find um, a lot of what he says these days with respect to that a bit bizarre. Yeah, I don't know if it was something he was never comfortable with and just went along with it because it was what was going on, or if it's something that's more recent. I mean, even the stuff he did at Disney was kind of weird. Like, Epic Mickey's a weird game, man. This is kind of dark in places. Um, not violent in the same, you know, sense of uh, much of his other body, and much of the rest of his body of work, but um, this is still a weird and kind of dark game. Um not surprisingly, he's not a fan of the trailer for um, Deus Ex Mankind Divided. Which, by the way, is a wicked-looking trailer, but it's <laughs> exceedingly violent. <laughs> Linguistic thoughts. You're kind of being quiet here. Uh, still getting my thoughts together. Um, what's what's One thing I've been thinking about, though, is I've been uh, poking through the article and some of the related uh, comments thereof. Um... I think part of the perception that um, that games can be immature in in several respects, there's there was a comment on there that uh, I've seen before um, that um, that um, that the commenter didn't believe that video games were very good vehicles for telling a creator designed story in the first place, and. That's something that I personally found completely off the wall, because, um, uh, I mean, I go off on the stories of the Ultima games all the time when I'm writing um, about my own playthroughs. But the thing is, when you're, when you're writing a story, you've got to tailor it to fit the medium. Um, writing a book is very different than writing a movie script. Both are very different from writing a script for a play or uh, an episodic TV show or a serial TV show. You've got to tailor the story to fit the medium. And when it comes to mm -hmm. video games, I think that's a medium where we're still trying to figure out all the techniques that go into that. Because there's more to telling a story than just the words. When you're shooting a movie, the camera angles, the music that you're using, uh, uh, the lighting, everything that goes into taking that shot is a way of crafting the story. And when it comes to video games, you're layering... You're layering game mechanics on top of that. You're layering player decisions on top of that. And how do you... There's there's a lot of moving parts to a game's story. And considering how relatively recent that is compared to other types of media, it's something we're still trying to figure out. I mean, there's definitely good game stories out there. Um, I mean, I love... Though I've never completed the game, I love Ultima Six's story. Uh, Planescape Torment is pretty much designed around upping the intellectual stats rather than the physical physical stats. It's all about discussion and persuasion and discourse. But it's it's something that's still in development. So it's 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 a matter of experimentation, figuring out what works and what doesn't, and that's part of the fun of the process. But uh, I think the fact that we haven't quite refined the craft as well as other media have is contributing to the perception to a degree. There's an element of that, certainly. And I mean, you know, the additional relation with movies, right? And that, you know, this shifts from genre to genre to genre. I mean, no one playing Candy Crush is expecting <laughs> narrative, you know. Um, but I hope I don't get sued by King now. Anyways, um, but, you know, but, you know, like, yeah, I mean, RPG versus first-person shooter versus, well, even then, like, within RPGs, I mean, you've got RPGs of the Western variety, and even then, within the Western, you've got, like, the Germanic RPGs and then the not-Germanic <laughs> RPGs. There's kind of a bit of a difference there, too, in how the approach is done. You've got JRPGs, you've got... Um, ARPGs, which, you know, um, sort of de-emphasize bits and, you know, some of the, the more um, time-intensive RPG mechanics in favor of, you know, more enemies and loot. Uh, you got adventure games, you've got first-person shooters, you got third-person shooter-type action games. You just, you know, and it goes on and on and on, right? And I mean, within each, and much like in movies, right? You know, you got historicals, you you know, historical and period pieces. You've got docudramas. You've got sci-fi, fantasy, 
uh, mystery, um, you know, and everything um, you mentioned there, you know, how the camera is done, how, um, you know, how the actors interact, the type of dialogue, uh, it all shifts from genre to genre to genre, and much the same in games. And, yeah, I mean, we haven't been doing the game thing nearly as long as we've been doing the movie thing. The movie industry is century old more um games not nearly so much uh so i suppose that the you know i I would certainly accept the argument that there's room for improvement you know that that games as um vehicles for tackling mature issues um certainly have room to improve um you know, I, I don't think I accept related to that that um, they are necessarily immature at this time. <laughs> yeah, I think something else to consider as well, you know, to really get to the root of the question is, you know, what exactly is meant by grown up or mature? For example, what would be the point of reference? You know, you get a you know, you can name other other types of artistic expression, um, as we were talking about films, you know, television series, you know, or novels, paintings, uh, photography, sculpture. Um, you know, are are these our points of comparison? Uh, you know, you mm-hmm. could actually say, okay, well, you know, if people in real life are perhaps the target, um, you know, of what's considered grown up, like the current state of human civilization, um, you know, how accurately uh, do the content of games as far as, you know, the action, the violence, the story, the interactions, the subjects, uh, you know, being explored in the games, you know, how accurately do those actually line up with what's going on every day, you know, with real living people across planet Earth? So the bar, you know, if you're talking about level of maturity, you know, responsibility, um, isn't really set very high in the first place. You know, you look at the types of, of films that come out, you know, that make a lot of money, and, you know, I wouldn't really consider, you know, any of those, you know, groundbreaking, you know, or insightful, or anything that would really still be respected, you know, a hundred years from now, much less 500 to a thousand years from now. Um, so when you look at it that way, I would say that, you know, the industry has grown up as much as it ever will. Maybe. I mean, (laughs) I guess it depends on, you know, like there's... Part of it's going to come with, you know, where the tech goes, right? And where the tech is able to take us. I mean, there's... You know, I was watching a, a tech demo today Um, because Microsoft Build is going on right now. I think it wraps up tomorrow. And they showed off, um, it was a Square Enix uh, tech demo um, using DirectX 12. And I mean, like this was set up on a high performance system. You you could see they had, you know, the, the tower that was running the demo was sitting behind the guy that was running the demo. (laughs) <laughs> that was guiding the demo um, and you know it had the transparent side on the case and you could see like there were four Titan GPUs in SLI configuration so I mean like this is a fairly beefy amount of graphics horsepower sure but you know I mean we talk about the uncanny valley um, oh so close so close like the guy played the demo through once and then like it's i mean it's square so it's you know like some pretty magic user girl or whatever and she's crying um like i say it's square (laughs) uh but so he plays the demo through once it's like a minute long and then he plays it through again but this time he takes manual control of it so he's messing with the lighting levels he's messing with level of detail or um draw distance things like that but then he goes to the girl and he zooms right in on her face and you know he's talking about how like there's 60 odd million triangles in the scene and the texture resolution is like 8k 
And I mean, it's, you know, when he actually got in and he, you know, like look, you look at her cheek or her nose or her hair. And it's just like that. Okay. That is perilously close to the other side of the uncanny Valley. Um, that raises the interesting question though, I suppose of, you know, like if you consider that in a few years, uh, that's going to be, you know, the norm for game graphics. And if you consider that in a few years, the possibility exists that, um, hollow technology, whether it's, you know, HoloLens or Oculus or, um, whatever else, um, may be more commonplace. Um, I mean, we're, talking about, you know, like, I'm just trying to imagine what, you know, an ultra, like a, a heavily violent game in VR with graphics of that nearly human looking detail. Um, I, I can see, you know, where there's a, there's a care and concern maybe that, uh, that I have there, uh, you know, uh, about that. And I think, but on the flip side, I, I think that, you know, those same technological frontiers are going to enable um, some very different, potentially very different, um, and potentially very moving storytelling in the future. So, and, you know, unfortunately, probably also the adult industry is going to get some major uh, well, yeah, that's kind of a given, no matter what you do. Question. <laughs> but um, Kevin, what you said but. about how do you define uh, maturity in a game—that that's got me thinking a bit. Because um, more than any other medium, um, video games are dependent upon the on interaction. It's 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 a more direct conversation than than something like a book or a film or a TV show or a play because because the player actually has some has some um oh what's the word I'm what's the word I'm looking for I can't talk today um some agency, agency. that's the, agency, yes perhaps. that's the word I'm looking for um beca- and in some respect that that means that even a mature game can be overlooked because the way the player plays it, they might be able to skirt around some of that, depending on how the <laughs> maturity is presented. I mean, you take a game that has a lot of thoughtful, in-depth conversations throughout the game, but if you get a player who's solely concerned from going with going from point A to point B as fast as possible, they're going to skirt around all that they're not necessarily going to see it and so it's i don't know it's a bit trickier now that's 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 very true for example like like ultima and grand theft auto i think both fall into those categories you know i've seen uh, youtube videos of the latest grand theft auto uh that are nothing but a guy getting into a car with a prostitute you know and you know after the business is conducted he murders her you know and takes his money back and if that's (laughs) If that's the only impression you've had of Grand Theft Auto, you would think it was absolutely horrible, you know, and really question the industry as a whole, uh, including the people that buy these games. On the other hand, if you actually play through the mission, the uh, the missions, you know, properly, if you will, um, you know, there's some amazing storytelling, you know, in writing uh, that's going on, and it's it's very much, uh, you know, like a, a crime drama film. Um, you know, by the same token with Ultima 7, 7, which had a reasonably strong story, I was using it more as a sandbox. You know, once I got the lightning whip, I just ran around whipping people with a lightning whip like a maniac. And, you know, if somebody, or the hoe of destruction, if somebody saw that out of context, it'd be exactly like someone going on a rampage in Grand Theft Auto. They would really question what the game was all about. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right that, that in part, what players do when they're playing a game to push its boundaries or to satisfy themselves by doing something ridiculous uh, repeatedly may falsely color you know the game as a whole to, to outsiders 
Well, you know, we even had some issues with that in Shroud. It was a few releases ago, but uh, <clears throat> like we had um, two or three players who essentially role-played a sexual assault in front of a bunch of other people. Um, naturally, this caused some headaches for the moderation staff. So, but, so, you know, and, and I mean, um, I, there's PVP in the game now. Um, it's not open PVP a la early Ultima Online, but still, like, we're having the usual issues that attend PVP, the spawn camping and all the rest. Um, a few people who try and really go out of their way to grief other people. Uh, but then on the other hand, you know, you have stuff like, um, well, like Paxlayer, right? I mean, none of this is re- none of this going on is related to you know the plot of the game in any way. <clears throat> uh, but you know, like you look at Paxlayer, who release after release, server wipe after server wipe. They're in there. They're diligently crafting and building and creating. First, in this little town of Valemark that they essentially commandeered, release after release, and now they have their own city, um, <clears throat> so that at least not everything gets wiped when there's a server reset. But, you know, like, just this meticulous um, exercise of city building, you know, which is its own, you know, in its own way, like, that's a very different kind of maturity, right? Like, that formation of a strong and vibrant and positively oriented community, um, like, that is its own kind of maturity. And... You mentioned something there, linguistic, that made me think of um, Doug the Eagle Dragon. And I'm not entirely sure, because, you know, I mean, yeah, there are people who don't play the game really for the story so much. And Doug is kind of a special case, although there are some other people who try and do this as well, is where, you know... They're not trying to be an asshole. (laughs) They're not trying to... Um, you know, uh, mess with things for the shock value or anything like that. They're actually trying to find the limits in the game. You know, like it's more of a technical analysis than anything. Uh, (laughs) you know, Doug's various, um, attempts to play through the Ultimas or a bunch of other games wrong in the sense that, you know, like he's, <clears throat> he gets to the end point, but he tries to do it by the most indirect, um, that shouldn't have been able to happen route. The anti walkthrough. You know, yeah, the anti walkthrough. But is that, you know, is that a kind of immaturity or is that actually a very mature approach to what might, you know, does that actually like take a game that might actually be an otherwise uninteresting brawler and give it a level of maturity it wouldn't otherwise have because it is such an interesting technical analysis of exactly where the game breaks down and what you have to do to get there. Well, I, I think that's, you know, both the strength and the curse of, you know, video games as a medium is that the designers, the developers, uh, have far less control um, you know, than those who create uh, films, for example, uh, because it's not a static product, it's dynamic. Um, and, you know, that's not just something that they necessarily try to get around or work around or prevent. You know, that's an inherent part of the medium, what really separates it uh, from other forms of expression. So they have to find a balance between the mechanics and the story and the sorts of, you know, scenarios that, that uh, they've engineered through creating the systems uh, find a balance between that and what the infinite number of players with different motives for playing the game, you know, are going to do uh, with the sort of playground uh, that they've been given. And uh, as Linguistic mentioned earlier when comparing video games to, to other forms of um, artistic media, um, there are a lot of moving parts. And, you know, I think, <clears throat> you know, I, th- I think video games are the most powerful form of artistic expression that people have created. Um, you know, if, if you look at other things like uh, painting, sculpture, novels, photography, and film, uh, video games combine to one degree or another all of these different things. 
like you know, sculpture, for example, you consider the actual 3D models in the game. You know, they're literally virtual sculptures. You can hook up a 3D printer and make them a physical sculpture if you like. Um, so it's it's very, you know, it's it's a very difficult medium to work in. Um, you know, and to, to see how quickly it's advanced, you know, it's such a short amount of time considering its complexity, I think is amazing. Um, you know, it really lets us know that the future is going to be even, even more amazing. Uh, but ultimately the content creators have limited control over what, <laughs> what the players, what the users do with that content. And that can certainly... Uh, paint a game, you know, in a better or worse light, depending on what they do with it. Well, what what a video game is essentially is it's telling a story in second person rather than uh, in first person through the eyes of a character or third person uh, story from the outside. It's it's the story of the player's own experience, and by definition, everybody who who experiences the story is going to see it differently because. The, each individual is going to react to it differently, and so and so when you've got uh, a game that's trying to tell a story, people are going to look at it from different angles, wander through it in different ways. It's 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 more difficult to tell a story that way because you don't have control of all the circumstances that you do in a book or a movie. It's because well, nobody reads a, a book. And just reads all the chapters in whatever order they please. It's it's very structured. It's very linear. And um, while there's while I personally don't have any any issue with linearity in games to an extent, it's 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 part of the medium to be able to to be able to react to the world your own way. It's it's. I'm losing my train of thought. I'm just going to stop there. <laughs> Well, you know, that actually sounds like a really good segue <clears throat> into the, the second part of, uh, we, we've given a good 40 minutes in already, um, but that sounds like a really good segue into the, the second part, um, <clears throat> because, I mean, <sighs> not exactly what Dungeons & Dragons tends to be, it's, you know, kind of that... <laughs> <laughs> the poor DM, GM, whatever whatever they call them these days, um, you know, has to sort of essentially put up with all of that and respond to it and tell a narrative around it and through it. You know, he's the game and he, you know, he is the, the game engine, if you will, um, or she is the game engine. And, you know, then it's just dealing with how all these different players sitting around the table are trying to interact with it and possibly exploit it or, you know, get, <laughs> get their own way through it. Um, and perhaps it's, uh, you know, no coincidence then that, you know, computer games owe a, a huge debt to Dungeons and Dragons. Um, IGN was, uh, pretty giddy about the announcement of Sword Coast Legends, which actually does look like a really neat game. Um, so they published an article, and this was a few months ago now, that took a look at uh, five ways in which Dungeons & Dragons exerted significant influence on video games. Uh, the five specific categories they called out were RPGs, and I mean, it's kind of an obvious, you know, obviously, you know, computer RPGs inherited heavily from the grandfather of pen and paper RPGs. Um, but they also call out the concept of player choice in gameplay. Um, they mention console adventure games like the Atari 2600 era. Um, they mention Quake and Deus Ex in that John Carmack and John Romero both drew considerable inspiration for uh, some of their games from their long-running D&D campaigns. Uh, and, of course, MMORPGs, which, again, like RPGs, is kind of obvious... And as I was uh, <clears throat> reading through this um, and, and you know, sort of looking for uh, related podcast content or related content for the podcast, rather, uh, I actually found a second article that also speaks to this topic, which calls out Ultima, or at least Acalabeth specifically. Um, <clears throat> you know, Acalabeth players explored maze-like dungeons. They managed their consumables. They measured character endurance and numeric hit points. They battled monsters using simulated dice rolls. 
D&D fans would recognize these instantly. The game was created by Richard Garriott, who was essentially combining two of his hobbies into one, and that framework was continually iterated upon. Um, the inspiration that came from Dungeons and Dragons are, are numerous, to say the least. The next time that you level up in Call of Duty or Dragon Age, you're exercising a concept that D&D created. Uh, your health bar originates from the game. Selecting a character, a class, customizing your loadout. All of this from D&D, and it's insane, really, to, to think about it, how so much of what we now consider conventional in games... Um, comes from you know people sitting around rolling dice pen and paper in hand um heck a calibeth was dnd 28 you know that was its working name so you know we have um we have a lot to thank dnd for in games we have a lot to thank ultima for in this respect as well since it was one of the first games the first series to incorporate these mechanics from dnd uh, and then sell well enough that other companies took the mechanics and ran with them. <clears throat> but uh, very much, I, I think, you know, from those roots, we, we get um, all of this. You know, this, this same sense that you have a game which is a, a framework for telling a story and then you subject it to players and you let them poke at it and approach it in what ways they will and <clears throat> how does the game respond you know like there's <laughs> there there is basically the 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 struggle of every designer Yeah, I think the uh, analogy between Dungeons and Dragons and video games, <clears throat> outside of the obvious, you know, influence that it had directly, uh, you know, on video games with your examples like Richard Garriott, uh, there is almost a one-to-one -one relationship between the, the concepts between the two. Um, you know, I got a bit of a late start with Dungeons and Dragons, so I'd actually played NES games and uh, first-generation console games uh, prior to being exposed to it. And, you know, my initial impression of what D&D &D was supposed to be was that it actually was more governed by hard rules, you know, and mathematical systems. And, you know, you know, one, one day, you know, my father, he explained to me, because he was familiar with it, you know, long before I was, that it was basically people sitting around telling each other stories just using their imagination and that the mathematics were secondary. And, you know, I first took that news very badly, being so used to computer games and console games. I was like, you know, that's horrible. That's all it is. It's like literally just people sitting around a campfire, you know, BSing all day. But once it sunk in, you know, I realized that was in fact what made it so magical, that it was the ultimate computer game. Uh, that, you know, it's, its potential for, you know, inspiring and entertaining, you know, people and allowing them to you know, indulge, you know, in fantasies, you know, in activities that they would never have, you know, the possibility of indulging in in real life, um, it allowed that, you know, and your imagination, if properly stimulated, uh, is really better than any sort of, you know, hard medium like, like film, where the images are just literally laid out in black and white in front of you. Um, so, you know, I think eventually games are going to come full circle back to their roots, and that the engines and the computers running them, you know, and the graphics cards will be so powerful and so accurate, um, <clears throat> you know, to the physical laws of the universe as we know them, that they will actually be able to simulate that level of reality with a computer game that you can achieve through your imagination when playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, we're already starting to get into aspects of that. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know if you heard about... Um... <laughs> elite dangerous yes uh you've probably heard you know that it's been made um but you know they wanted to simulate the galaxy basically and <clears throat> they wanted to do it you know i can't remember exactly what the setup was but basically they built their galaxy model and then they were looking out from earth within the game engine 
um, at, you know, like different planets and different stars. And just like, this doesn't quite, and like, they were kind of, I think they were back and forthing with NASA about it. And they're just like, you know, this doesn't quite look right. They're, 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 it's, they're too visible. You know, something isn't right here. And so what the elite guys did was they basically took the solar system and put a bunch of dust in it and around it. And, uh, you know, then the NASA guys and them were looking at it again. They're just like, hey, that looks right. And then the NASA guys all just went, whoa, (laughs) hold on a minute here. (laughs) Did we just inadvertently discover something? Um so, you know, already there's been some of that intersection where you have these, you know, have game designers working with scientists and, you know, all of a sudden, like, holy crap, we just figured something out that we didn't know before. Um, so the Elite Dangerous team has assisted NASA with studying dark matter at dark energy. They, they figured <laughs> that least, one out. Or at least stellar dust. And, you know, why... Uh, why the stars appear at the apparent magnitudes that they do from earth. Um, so, you know, already like there it's simulating the galaxy and it just got a little bit more realistic. Um, uh, I had another thought too, that I was going to run with here, but then I got onto that train of thought and dropped it. (laughs) What were we talking about before this? Oh, no, it's gone. Maybe it'll come back, but, uh, yeah, just thinking about... Yeah, jump in someone. I'm trying to call what I was Well, say. that's that's kind of the beauty of communal storytelling. I mean, I'm I'm a writer. I like I like, you know, telling stories of my own, but half the fun of it sometimes is being able to bounce ideas off of someone else. Um because they're going to notice details that you didn't even think about. It's it's because when when you start telling a story and get someone else involved, it's never going to go the way you intended it in the first place. Because someone is going to latch on to something that you would have overlooked, and you realize just how important or interesting that one little detail can be, and things can go in an entirely different direction. It's it's a powerful thing, and and. The, the article that um, sparked this whole thing mentions MMOs as um, as um, one of the things games have to thank from Dungeons and Dragons, and I can I can really see where they're coming from with that one because it's basically just a whole bunch of people getting together in the same framework of a system and being able to tell their own story through that framework. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, I mentioned, like, Pax Lair and Shroud, and they did this with Ultima Online as well. They're the oldest player-run community in Ultima Online. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, they have very much a, a shared communal story that they've been telling for over a decade now, right? Like, 14 years, I think, they've been operating in UO, and now they're coming over to Shroud, you know? What's the story going to do now? And that was, a th- that was the other point that I wanted to, you know, mention, is the fact that... <clears throat> You know, in the discussion about the maturity of games, and again now, there's this um, repeated mention and focus uh, on and of story. Um, you know, it, storytelling, game as vehicle for story. Um, what kinds of stories are we telling, you know? And I think, you know... That's, we're people of story, you know, human beings are people of story. Story is hugely important to us at basically every level of our development, of our social groupings, um, everything is almost everything at any rate is really is is analyzed through a framework that fundamentally incorporates storytelling 
really even, you know, scientific hypotheses are in their own way storytelling. Because you're, you know, you're, you're setting up a narrative informing your hypothesis and in articulating it, you're setting up this narrative, you know, I have these precursors that I am going to be combining and interacting with and what have you in the expectation that I will arrive at this outcome, right? There is a narrative thread there. It might be a little dry, but it is a narrative, even so. That is very true. Um, you know, for example, I don't know if anyone here or listening is a fan of sports, but, uh, you know, often when people are talking about uh, sports games and, uh, you know, analysis after the game, they speak of the story of the game. And obviously, you know, there's no one having discussions. There's no romantic relation relationships. There's no big boss at the end that the team has to beat to death with their baseball bats. Uh, but never, nevertheless, based on the physical mechanics of the game as it progresses, uh, you actually can find stories within that. Um, you know, and the same thing happens in games, even if they don't have some grand centralized story. Uh, if you give players enough freedom, you know, if the mechanics serve that well enough, uh, the stories will evolve naturally, you know, through human nature and the resulting interactions of the players themselves, whether it's a very small story, you know, or something grander, like something that you might see in EVE Online, for example. You know, there can be economic stories, political stories. Um, so that's a very good point that you make. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> games really are a vehicle for that like no other. I mean, obviously, you know, stories in books, movies tell stories. Um, games do it in a way that, you know, adds that element of, um, and not just interaction with the story, but, you know, being able to alter it or if not completely alter it, you know, I mean, the game, <laughs> the game may only have one ending, may only have one outcome. So if not completely alter it, then at least um, exert a measure of control over the exact shape of it, you know, over the exact, um, over the particulars of each moment within the story. Even if you do arrive at that same conclusion, um, you can do a lot to shape it as you move along. And nothing else really offers that. Except, again, like D&D, &D, pen and paper stuff. Or choose your own adventure books. <laughs> True. <laughs> ah. Well, that was informative. And we're coming up on the one hour mark. And I hear my little one stirring a little bit in the background. So I think once again, I'm going to shelf discussion of... Mass Effect 4, bring that up some other time. Um, <clears throat> just moving on quickly, one thing uh, that I noticed, <laughs> and I don't know if it's been shouted out in any of their updates yet, but uh, it must have by now, I'm sure. But um, <clears throat> just mentioning Shroud of the Avatar, um, it would appear that Portalarium, in addition to you know allowing for a licensed comic, has now also licensed out uh, the creation of merchandise. So there's a website called Relics by Rild, and I'm not sure if that's a company. I think Rild is actually just one guy, a shroud backer and a fairly influential member of the community. Um, most of what he's selling right now are hats, although he does have shot and pint glasses for sale, um, and also uh, coins commemorating the Darkstar versus Lord British challenge, which actually do look kind of neat. Uh, as well, I think we were talking about apps previously. Yes, in the manuals discussion, we were talking about the uh, the apps, the companion apps for Shroud of the Avatar. And uh, <clears throat> someone, and he's got, oh my god, Duke Grigoire? There's a lot of accents there. 
Anyways, he's um, announced that he'll be working on an app. What else? Uh, a reference app for New Britannian Runic, which will include on-the-fly translation between English and Runic. Um, ideally, he'd even like to you know support the use of the smartphone's camera as a means of scanning in images of text for translation. So, you know, going, I guess, back to, you know, that discussion about how companion apps could be the, the new manuals, there's another example, I suppose, um, which serves a useful feature because unlike Rustic Dragon and a few others, um, I actually have never been completely fluent in Runic. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a... I'm always happy when the map text is in English. I can I can learn programming languages. I cannot learn um, other languages. Yes. <laughs> you just have to practice. I learned runic katakana in hiragana in high school, so I could pass all sorts of secret messages all day long. Nice. I prefer programming languages. <laughs> unlike, you know, unlike spoken or written languages which have you know which occasionally break their own rules programming languages tend not to oh but that's half the fun of it <laughs> yeah, yeah actually sergo and dragon and i were having a bit of a chat about that the other day uh homonyms in particular right because especially when you're trying to learn english like there's so many homonyms and they're unrelated, you know, like the, the the individual words are unrelated to each other, right? There, there, and there. No relation between them, right? Um, but he pointed out that, you know, it's hard to learn. But once you learn it, as someone coming to English as a second language, he's noticed that, you know, um, people who speak English natively tend to make oh, mistakes with those. A lot more than he does. And I mean, I've seen that, you know, that, that's actually true in, in a lot of things. You know, when you're making the conscious decision to come to something versus being um, born into it, there is, there tends to be that, uh, yeah, that, that almost better grasp of it and, and sort of more um, fervent observation as well of, you know, of it so eh, interesting side point um does anyone have any shout outs they want to give or is it just me it might just be me uh the only people i want to actually mention this time around are the uh <clears throat> the overclocked remix people they're a community of musicians who have been dedicated to the appreciation, preservation, and interpretation of video game music. Um, you can hit up their website for a lot of great remixes of classic game tunes, uh, many of which are available for free download. Um, we actually, we're going to be using one of their tunes for the, well, we used one of their tunes as the outro to the last podcast, and this podcast is going to use uh, another of their tracks at both the intro and outro, and I'm toying with the idea of making it the music for Spam, 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 Humbug. I'm not entirely decided on that yet. Um, like everybody else these days, they've got a Patreon, uh, so if you like what you heard, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, and if you like what you hear hearing this podcast, um, by all means, do consider backing them. Uh, they seem to do great stuff, and they've been going for a long time, too, like 1999, I think, is when they were first founded. So, uh, you know, if you actually stroll through their archives, um, you, you find a couple of interesting things because, you know, you find uh, a lot of the same artists uh, doing remixes year after year after year. So you not only get to hear people's evolution as musicians, um, but you also get to hear, you know, sort of changing styles influenced by the era of their creation. Right. So really, really quite neat. Yeah, I'd just like to interject as a big fan of OC Remix, uh, somebody who's used the site for a long time. Um, if you're a remixer or if you're interested in uh, doing some video game remixes, uh, they accept submissions, they judge them. Uh, each has their own entry with a description, uh, so you can actually submit your own remixes there. Um, also, the majority of the site is in fact free, and you should sign up with the site, uh, get on their email list, 
Uh, they will occasionally put together a cohesive-themed album of remixes, and they will email you notifying you when it's available, and they are generally free of charge. And they do have a few Ultima tunes, of which this will be one. <laughs> ah, all right. I think we're going to call it... Um, Always remember, if you'd like to recommend anyone for a shout-out, shoot an email to ultimacodex at gmail.com. Uh, you can also suggest podcast topics, offer commentary, criticism about episodes, um, or volunteer as a contributor. There's the Ultima Dragons group on Facebook. You should totally join that if you are on Facebook. There's an Ultima Dragons community on Google+. You should join that if you're on Google+. There is... I'm trying to slowly start a UDIC hashtag on Twitter... If you're on the Twitters, by all means, spam the UDIC hashtag. Um, because, yes. <laughs> and, yeah, there's the Patreon. Um, you know, that, uh, <clears throat> that, that helps to maintain the, 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 the codex server infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, with sufficient funding, will be used to expand that server infrastructure. Um, <clears throat> I had a little bit of thinking, and I decided last week that, you know, I was going to make it so now the $5 pledge level uh, gets you access to Spam, 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 Humbug the day before they go live on the Codex. Um, but, yeah, do that, too. All right, well, um, anybody got anything to add, or shall we move on to farewells? Fare thee well withstand the fury. <laughs> And the Sanctimonia Linguistic. <laughs> Having some mic problems. Until next time, folks. All right. And indeed, until next time, everyone, be thou virtuous. <laughs>